Thank you, Brian and Beth. Let's go to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14. And I think that uh, Sarah Allen, this will be her last Sunday or last service with us. Is that right, Sarah? Is that right? Next Wednesday. Is that right? Am I understanding that right? Okay, got it. I don't, want to, I don't want to have too many goodbyes, and so I want to make sure we're getting the right one in. So we've got another. We'll be here Sunday. The next Wednesday will be your last service. And, and then, is that right? You won't be here Sunday. So this is your last service. No, you, you will be gone Sunday, and you'll be here Wednesday. So we'll wait and say goodbye then. All right? Now, Miss Sarah, they're going to Massachusetts, but she's heading to Tampa to teach. And uh, so just want to make sure you knew, most of you, May know, but we want to make sure we get the goodbyes in. May want to go ahead and get it in tonight, too, and uh, since you'll miss her Sunday, but we'll make sure Wednesday we will uh, be able to say uh, our, our, it's not our, our goodbye, um, it's just uh, for now until we see you again is the way it is. And so with God's people, we don't have to worry about goodbyes. Uh, we know we'll, at least we're going to catch up somewhere at some time. And heaven is the ultimate destination, so we're thankful for that part. But I'm glad God's using Miss Sarah and be teaching. We need to be praying for her and praying for those kids, that's for sure. And uh, we'll, do, we'll do that and see God do some great things. Exodus chapter 14. We've looked at Exodus 14. There's a lot in Exodus 13, 14, and 15. You can spend a long time. It really would be a great series and um, so there's things we've looked at in Exodus 14 before, and even and maybe overlapped this very thought tonight, but this was a message I wanted to preach the Sunday night we were returning from Stillwater Men's Advance, and I did not, and just set it aside and felt with what God's been doing coming out of camp, what God's wanting to continue to do within our lives, and then getting ready for NBT, Neighborhood Bible Time, and various things I thought maybe we'd come back to this, this particular thought and emphasis. I won't have you stand. We won't read this uh, all uh, in, in, at the beginning. I want us to, to work our way through and we'll get to the message. The message will be fairly brief, but the introduction would be a little bit longer as I want us to digest a truth that's here. And so, Dr. Childs, we won't, we won't stand. We won't stand. No, sir. No, sir. But... I, I, we could, I mean, but, but I'll, I'll read it as we get to it here. We won't stand. Um, in this particular passage, remember, um, God's people have started on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. They could have taken a shortcut. They could have gone along the coast into Canaan, but that stretch of land, that shortcut area was well fortified with Egyptian forts, and the road really wasn't a road at all, the other option that is. And so it crossed where they had to go. It crossed the Red Sea into the desert area where Moses spent 40 years. It just was not an ideal route that they took. But you're going to find that God does what He does in our life for two main reasons. Ultimately, we're looking at God does what He does so that He would get the glory. And we get frustrated and we get uh, some convoluted thoughts when we think that we should get some of the glory somewhere. And so, 
God ultimately is getting glory. We'll see that here in the passage. And then the other is for our good. Whatever he's doing, it's for our good, but ultimately it's for his glory. In chapter number 14, the first nine verses, let me just give you how I would break this down, this chapter, and uh, this is not my particular outline here, these three thoughts, uh, but you find Egypt pursuing in verses 1 through 9. You find Israel panicking in verses 10 through 12. But you find God's power being displayed in verses 13 through 31. And so in these first nine verses, we find Egypt is pursuing. And these are the ones that, that held them bondage. They're, they're escaping them. And in these first nine verses, again, you're going to see if we read this through that the Lord is passionate about His glory. So let's look in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speaking to the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihiroth between Migdal at the sea, over against Beelzephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he shall follow after them, and I will be honored before Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. And so God is passionate about his glory. Then in the next set of verses, verse 10 through 12, but actually verses 10 through 31, you find that God's about the matter of delivering people. He's a delivering God. So the book of Exodus, it really is magnifying the greatness of God. You can't help but get stirred about God when you read the book of Exodus. It just, God is great. And that is what you see. And constantly you see the emphasis, no one is like God. Over and again in the book of Exodus, you'll hear the people of God say, the Lord is our God. There is no God like our God. There is no rock like our rock. He is God. There is none other. And, um, and so in the verse three verses, you find the strategy that's described in these verses. And the truth is, it's crazy. The strategy is not a good military strategy unless God is in charge. Israel was on their way out when God told them to go back and camp between the sea and the desert. But remember, God always uses unusual strategies throughout the Bible, does He not? Remember Abraham and Sarah's age when they had a child 100 years old and 90? Have you heard the story of Gideon and his little army in Judges 6 through 8? What about Jehoshaphat's battle with the Ammonites and the Moabites in 2 Chronicles chapter 20? Strange strategy. What about the demoniac and the pigs in Mark chapter number 5? And ultimately, God used a very unusual strategy with Jesus going to the cross. No doubt, Satan, like Pharaoh here in this passage, must have thought that he had Jesus trapped and that he was about to die. Yet in this unusual strategy of the cross, God brought deliverance for us. And he glorified Jesus. And then verse 4 tells us why. Why God did what he did. And it's for his own glory. Again, this is 
central to the book of Exodus. Know that he's God and that he gives glory to no one else. God is passionate about his glory. Now, it can seem somewhat confusing to some to think, doesn't that seem self-serving for God to be passionate about himself, to be consumed with his glory? Doesn't that seem to be a little bit self-serving? Well, God is the answer. He's the deliverer. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the life giver. So what he's simply helping people to see is there is no other solution. There is no other option. There is no answer apart from God. God is the only one who has right motives. God is the only one who is right, who's justice. That's what we're singing about in that course. He's righteous. He's just every time, all the time. And so God is just simply helping us when we lose clarity, when we lose perspective to see he's not negotiating as to how many other options or what other way. He's still looking to us to recognize he's right. He's God. We're not. In verse number 10, God's people, they saw the Egyptians just like we saw Sunday morning how the children of Israel after Exodus 14 over in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, they didn't learn, for, they didn't remember what they should have learned here. But here we find that they looked at the Egyptians and they were afraid. Notice in verse 10, and when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt, uh, dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? You see their, their, their uh, sarcasm, the, the cynicism, all because of their fear. They're, they're, they're looking at the weapons of mass destruction, so to speak. They're looking at the Egyptians who are so much greater than they. But what's the real problem? Israel was forgetting that it was God who brought them to this place. God is the one who did this. They needed only to fear God and trust in God's love for them. But they didn't. They, they began to turn on Moses. They look at the problem. They, they look at all these things. When all they had to do was trust and obey, God was the one leading. God was in charge. Verses 11 and 12. We read 11. Look at verse 12. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. The Israelites began to complain to Moses. And this has become an ongoing challenge for God's people, constantly complaining, murmuring. Moses told them, verse 13 and 14, notice what he says. Fear ye not, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. 
And so here we find God has directed them. Here, instead of looking to God, they look at the problem. They make the wrong conclusion. They complain. They murmur. They, they lose opportunity to praise God in advance. Moses reminds them, here's the strategy. Stand quietly. The Lord will fight for you. That's the strategy. That's the right strategy. And later this same promise is used again. But do you see the thing over and again? Do not be afraid. Fear is not from God. God's not giving you a spirit of fear. The battle, it's not yours. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. But do you know you don't see the salvation of the Lord if you don't stand still? They could have said, Moses, you try that. We've got to save our lives. We've got to protect our family. They would have forfeited watching God work. Isn't that maybe why God reminds us again and again and again to be patient, to wait patiently, to wait God doesn't need your help. He needs you to trust, then obey. He doesn't need you to perform miracles. He's a miracle-working God. He needs you to not be afraid, to stand still. You list all your complaints and all that's going wrong and why you're outnumbered, your resources are not sufficient. When you get done, then you take a good look at God. Don't be afraid. The battle's not yours. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. Verse 15 through verse 18. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground, through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. Now, do you notice hear how God singled out Moses. God gave Moses instructions to divide the sea. Imagine what Moses' human reaction might have been to these instructions. Those of us who've heard this story, we may miss the shocking nature of what this might have been like in real time. Pharaoh's coming. The people are complaining. And God says, Moses, hold out your stick and I will part the waters. Might look like some kid playing military with a stick. And Will picks up a stick, any stick becomes a gun in Will's hand. Hold out your stick and I will part the waters. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, once again, the theme is verse 17 and verse 18 God's glory is being repeated. The theme is God's glory. There is no one like God. 
Psalm 103, verse 7. God made known his ways unto Moses and his acts unto the children of Israel. See, the Jewish people, God's people were told what God wanted them to do, but it was Moses that God told why. Why why would God select Moses? Remember, God doesn't have favorites. He has intimates. Don't forget Psalm chapter 25 and verse 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. And so He not only told Moses the what, He told them the why. See, the leadership of Moses was a key ingredient to the deliverance of God's people. Verse 19 through 20, we see another significant part here. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. So that the one came not near the other all the night. So you see, after God's instructing of Moses, you see God telling the people what they're supposed to do. God tells Moses why. And God instructs Moses in verse 19, the angel of God enters into the scene. The angel the angel of God, the presence of God, and the cloud moved behind the Israelites. Remember in chapter number three, the angel of the Lord spoke from the bush that burned but was not consumed. And here, the cloud, the presence of God, it keeps the Egyptians from getting near the Israelites. Therefore, God is constantly, continually keeping his promises to his people. Now while the Israelites prepared to march toward the sea, the angel of God who had been leading them with the pillar of cloud now stood behind them as a guardian, preventing the Egyptians from overtaking them. You know what that reminds me of? The reality that God is present to both guard and to guide his people. God is present to both guard and guide his people. Hey, let me remind us of this. Just because you can't see the way does not mean that God doesn't have the way. Just because you don't see the way doesn't mean that there's not a way that God has provided. So tonight, with that being said, I want us to look at how you can experience God's presence even when you don't sense the presence of God. How can you experience God's presence even when you don't sense God's presence? In Exodus 13, verse 21, the chapter before tells us that the Lord went before His people by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 19 and 20, that we just read, God himself, he's coming between his people and their enemy. A cloud of darkness to the Egyptians, but at the same time, a cloud of light by night to the Israelites. This is the Lord himself leading his people. The Lord is guiding and guarding at the same time. 
This is the Lord Himself leading His people. Isaiah 52 verse 12, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your reward. Matthew Henry says, Those in the way of duty are under God's special protection, and he that believes this will not hasten for fear. See, for God's children, he serves both as your guard and your guide. Psalm 84 and verse 11 speaks to this. No good thing will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. The verse before reminds us that he is a sun and a shield. God precedes us. God protects us. He is simultaneously our shepherd and he's our shield. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the first. He's the last. He's the one who goes before. He's the one who who goes behind. Psalm 139, verse 5 and 6, thou hast, set me, uh, be, thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Psalm 125, verse 2, has the mountains around about Jerusalem. So the Lord is round about his people from henceforth forever and ever. Psalm chapter 5 and verse 12, For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous with favor, wilt thou compass him as with the shield. Psalm 32 verse 7, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. Psalm 32 verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. See, at the Red Sea, God put his people in a position where his presence had never been so real to them. Using difficulty, God cultivated within them a greater appreciation for God. So why do we complain and kick against when God's trying to do that for us? You see, God's presence in the trial is much better than the exemption from the trial. God's presence in the trial is much better for you and me than exemption from the trial. The Lord's presence is never so sweet as in moments of a extreme difficulty. Whenever you find yourself between sword and sea, Remember that difficult times can sensitize us to God's nearness. Isn't that what we ultimately need is a sensitizing so that we have a sensitivity to the presence of God? God's never so close as when we're shipwrecked on omnipotence and driven by despair into his chambers where there we find God. Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Amen. Amy Carmichael, she said, God is first and he is last. And we are gathered up between as in great arms of eternal loving kindness. It's the presence of God that we need 
experiencing God. My fear with the theme of experiencing God is that we get to the point of hearing it so often that we become desensitized to the very thing that we need. The deepest need of the human heart is to encounter God. You'll find in the book of Genesis when Satan came in on the scene, the first time you find him, he's confronting Eve. And he gets in on the scene, and do you know what he's promoting? He's promoting God. Satan is promoting God. But he's taking out the lordship and leadership of God in their life. He's simply settling with God. Not the Lord God, but God. In other words, Satan doesn't mind if anybody gets involved with religion. He doesn't mind Adam and Eve, they, they uh, dabble with religion. He doesn't mind if you entertain the notion of being the most religious person you can be. But Jesus didn't die on the cross, buried and resurrected so you can have religion. He died on the cross so that you can have a relationship with the only one who's the answer for your soul. Our deepest need is to encounter God. You face all kinds of needs. Everybody in here has needs. Some are physical. Others are social. Some are emotional. But spiritual needs, however, are some of the greatest needs that we have. Because you can have physical needs tonight. You can have emotional needs tonight. You can have social needs tonight. And none of those needs would keep you out of heaven. But the condition of your soul what you've done with Jesus Christ determines eternity. So the greatest need you have is not physical or emotional or social, but it is spiritual. And spiritual needs can only be met by God himself. Only God can satisfy the desires of one's soul and one's hungry heart. And only God can do that. And he does it only on his terms. What people need in addition to good sound information about God in the scripture is a fresh encounter with God. People need to move from having an encounter with a great principle or great thought or great truth and move beyond that to the living God who's the person of God, the person of that thought, the person of that truth, God himself. Just as in Bible times, being in the presence of the living God, it's an awesome experience. To stand before Him, to stand before the one who created the universe with only the sound of His voice. And He's the only one who graciously provides salvation for all of fallen humanity. Meeting God is life changing. Everyday encounters, everyday encounters are part of God's plan. No one can leave the presence of God and remain the same. But you can be religious, you can attend church, you can, you can grit your teeth and you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you can be determined, I shall not be moved from being faithful and doing things and you can do it and live your life and die and stand before God empty because you never experience the reality and the fresh reality of God on a daily basis. Here's what most people miss. We just don't encounter God. And the truth being known is this. It's not about you encountering Him as much as it is about letting God encounter you. God's looking for you. 
He initiates encounters with us, not in order to give us warm devotional thoughts, but to change our lives forever. As He reveals His will to us, we're compelled to adjust our lives to His activity and to join Him in His work. We're surrounded by values and standards and viewpoints that are contrary to Scripture. And every day we're bombarded with a world system and it leaves us disoriented to a holy God. But every time you open God's Word, you have an awesome opportunity to experience a dramatic encounter with the living God that will shake you and change your way of thinking. That's why we need fresh encounters with God. That's why we must seek such encounters with God. We must approach God's word with our hearts that are willing to obey whatever God says, no matter the cost. When we reverently and expectantly approach the scriptures, God is ready to speak to you. He's ready to speak life-transforming words. And we will never be the same again. That's what the teens need coming back from camp. You know what God dealt with many of them, most of them about? A world system that's been tampering with God's design in their life. What they hear, what they watch, what they do, who they follow. The answer is encounters with God daily. So God can recalibrate. And moms and dads, if you've been wishy-washy, up and down, inconsistent, and you're encountering and experiencing God, nothing should motivate you more than to help your kids and encourage, lay the foundation, and cultivate the, the atmosphere and culture in your home that you're going to be bent on seeking God. Robert Morgan, he's written a few books and and he's, he talked about his mother's struggle with loneliness. He said, but as time passed, his mom discovered the benefits of living alone, mainly God's presence. She said, I've adjusted nicely to the single life, for I've never been so sure I'm not alone. The Lord and I talk together all day. When I wake up in the morning, He's waiting to greet me. And when I go to bed at night, He stays up and stands guard over me. Robert Morgan said of his mom, Mother's latter years were marked by renewed love for the Word of God, busy ministry to others, a deepened prayer life, and accelerated growth in praise and worship. Isn't that the normal Christian life? I would say that that too testifies of what I've seen in Dr. Childs. May not be standing in a classroom, but he's experiencing God. See, the presence of God, listen to me, the presence of God will not always fix your problems. Not the way you want it to. I'm sure God's people in Exodus 14, they wanted to get rid of the Egyptians. What God gave them was His promise. 
But what God's presence will do is it'll clarify your perspective. Whether God delivers us from this is his business. What we need to do is trust and obey. You got it? Ready for the message? I'm telling you, this will go by fast. How can you then experience God's presence even when you don't sense God's presence? First thought, number one, just declare God's nearness to be a reality. Just declare it. Declare God's nearness to be a reality. We saw Psalm 139, verse 5 and 6. How about Philippians 4, verse 5 and 6? Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Acts 18, verse 9 and 10. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the, in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace for I am with thee and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. See, it's the practice of frequently reminding ourselves of the Lord's abiding presence. Many a times, what's come to my mind is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is right now, he's my shepherd. It's the practice of frequently reminding ourselves of the Lord's abiding presence. If you will attempt this diligently, it'll become habitual and soon thereafter, it'll become natural. Just declare God's nearness to be a reality. Number two, visualize God's presence in your mind. Visualize it. One preacher said it this way, often when I pray, I look at a nearby chair and I talk to God as though he were sitting there. I speak to him naturally as to a friend. See, it isn't a matter of projecting an image of God and pretending He's there. Listen, it's not pretending He's there. It's a matter of recognizing the very presence of God who really is there. One young lady said when she goes to sleep, she visualizes the Lord holding her in His arms as her father used to hold her in the rocking chair when she was small. It's a similar imagery used by the Bible's writers as well. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is thy refuge. We just heard that sung. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say, destroy them. How about 2 Timothy 4, verse 16 and 17? Paul says that my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Visualize God's presence. It not only bestows great comfort in your life, but it will also restrain sinful tendencies. You imagine... You imagine what God says to be true because it is true. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It'll bring you comfort 
But it should also help you when it comes to looking at something you shouldn't look at. Thinking something you shouldn't be thinking. Saying something you shouldn't say. The presence of God. It's a comfort and a restraint. Here's a third thought. Access God's nearness through prayer. In other words, how do we experience God's presence when we don't sense God's presence? Well, number three, access God's nearness through prayer. Declare God's nearness to be a reality. Visualize God's presence in your mind and then access God's nearness through prayer. James 4 and verse 8. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. How? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 7. For what nation is there so great? Who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon Him for? See, the best way to develop an abiding awareness of God's presence is to speak to Him often in prayer. Prayer is the environment in which we most solidly connect with God on an intimate basis. Keep in mind, if Jesus spent early in the morning before anybody else got up, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, in prayer. If Jesus spent all night in prayer, if Jesus, being fully God, spent time in prayer and communion to His Father, how much more should we? D.L. Moody was asked how he managed to remain so intimate in his relationship with Christ. He replied, There isn't any problem in my life. There isn't any uncertainty in my work. But I turn and speak to God as naturally as to someone in the same room. And I have done it these years because I can trust Jesus. So We, we may not always feel his presence in an emotional sense. But by faith, we enter into his presence in a vital and a spiritual sense. Let me give you one last thing. Number four. How do you experience God's presence even when you don't sense it? Reflect, number four, His presence in your demeanor. In other words, reflect the reality of God. Let me give you two people who put this to practice. One was Joseph. In Genesis 39, verse 9, the Bible says of Joseph, remember, Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. And in order for it to be a temptation, it had to be a temptation. And so this would have been an appeal to, to Joseph as a young man who had, had feelings, who had eyes. And, and this was not a one-time event, but it was an ongoing appeal to Joseph to have... A, an inappropriate, immoral relationship with this wife. And here's what Joseph said in Genesis 39, verse 9. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he, that is her husband, kept back anything from me but thee. Because thou art his wife, how then I, can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, what Joseph is saying, he explained to Potiphar's wife why he couldn't participate in an inappropriate 
relationship with her. He says, I can't cooperate, number one, because you are another man's wife. And that man was also his master. Number two, he says that he was trusted by his master and didn't want to violate his trust. But number three, he says, even if nobody else finds out about it, God would know and God would be displeased. And all she asked for was a moment of pleasure. But to Joseph, this was considered to be a great wickedness against God. Can I remind you, Joseph had less than you and I have. He didn't have a local church. He didn't have a pastor. He did not have the indwelling, abiding of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have the completion of the Word of God. But he had enough sense to know that God is who he said he is. And God is real. And God sees and God knows. Let me give you a second man. His name is David. In Psalm 51 verse 3 and 4, David says, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. In other words, David said, I blew it. I messed up by looking at a woman I had no business looking at, involving myself in inappropriate, immoral behavior. I stole her from her husband. I then sought to have her husband removed from the scene. And we find that her husband uh, was one that, that, uh, that David, who was a very loyal man, David got him drunk. And so as to get him to go in and have relations with Bathsheba to cover up the fact that David, that she was carrying David's son, and we find that, that Uriah, he still was a faithful man, even intoxicated, that Uriah was, had more ethics and integrity drunk than David had sober. David was not only guilty of adultery, but also of murder. He violated most every commandment of the Ten Commandments. In a year, he, he, he ran from God. He resisted God. For a year, he's out of fellowship with God. The man after God's own heart. But what made him a man after God's own heart is not that he didn't blow it. But what made him a man after God's own heart is that he'd come back to God. Psalm 51 is him taking off the mask. He's tired of playing the game. His, his bones hurt. His body ached. Being out of fellowship with God. When you don't experience God, God is in you and you don't experience him. You're not living the normal Christian life. And here David, here David, he cries out and he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Psalm 51 and verse 1, and God did. And David experienced real revival. You want to see what real revival looks like and what the prayer of revival looks like? Psalm 51. In verse 3 and 4, he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. In other words, David said, I, I, I did this in front of people. I did this to people. I hurt people. But ultimately, my great Sin was against God who sees everything, knows everything, 
had David practiced the reality of God in his demeanor and in his life, he wouldn't have had the heartache and the regret and the scars upon his life. When he got right with God, he went back to living with the Lord being my shepherd. I shall not want. And you and I can too. When you don't sense the presence of God, you can still experience the presence of God. God's real. It's not religion. It's God. It's not checking the box of Christian duty. It's meeting with God. You're not facing your difficulty alone. Whatever you're facing tonight, the Lord is closer than a brother. Envision His enveloping presence in your life tonight. Don't run from Him. Run to Him tonight. Let's stand together, please.